I found out things like when you see Val Kilmer's lips, it's Val Kilmer singing. And when you don't see his lips, it's Jim Morrison. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Focus Right Pro Podcast. This is a mostly bi-monthly show where we dive into the cutting-edge technology behind professional audio products. If you happen to miss episode 24, which is part one of our three-part conversation with Tom Kenny, content director for Mix Magazine, we suggest that you hit pause on this one and listen to that episode first because we're going to pick up right where we left off. Today we discuss Tom's passion for the mix sound for film and TV event, a star-studded surprise show at the Bluebird Cafe in Bloomington, Indiana, Paul Rothschild inviting Tom to Hollywood to write a feature on the Doors movie, and a whole lot more. The tech awards to, you know, you're involved with this sound for film and sound television. Film. Yeah. That's wow. um, a great, it's, a, it's still in my life. It's still a big part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Tell event. people about that. Cause a lot of people, some people uh, might not know, you know about it. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and not even the event, but sound for film as a category itself. Let's, no. let's, you know, I, I think that comes first. The event is chapter 22 in a 28 page book. Yeah. Know, or a 28 chapter right. book. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big part of my life. Uh, do you guys like movies? Do you guys like movies? I mean, love movies. Yeah, movies, right? I mean, I it, it's what do. drives. Yeah, I mean, it drives all of us to. I think a lot of musicians are just deep down frustrated movie directors, screenwriters, cinematographers. You know, we love film. We love that visual medium. But you know, we're part. We love to be a part of the the audio end of it, and whether it's composing or sound design or. Just mixing hey, Trent Reznor. Okay, Trent Reznor wins an Oscar. Right. <laughs> what it's do you think is a bigger deal? I mean, I yeah. don't know. A yeah. Grammy or an Oscar? I think no, no. at a certain point, film isn't, uh, you know. Yeah. Dude, Trent Reznor has an Oscar. That's yeah. awesome. I think yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, I do too. And, uh, I think it's great. And I think it, uh, that that's sort of point. So <laughs> it is a good story. I might have to fill my Jameson again in order to tell the story. But I'm at Mix. There's, it was the uh, 1991. And Mix is the recording industry magazine. That's sort of what we're known for. We cover live sound. We cover high-end audio film. We cover broadcast. But in 1991, there was no real mechanism. There was no sound for film or television or anything like that. There was a guy named Nick, Nick Pasquariello. Nick Pasquariello wrote occasional articles. He would pitch Blair, the managing editor, and we'd have this occasional thing about a recording dialogue on the set of something. I name a movie in the seventies, but they were rare. And so I'm sitting honestly in the mix office. I've been there two years and I've, I, I handled proofreading, copy editing, style book, all that. And I'd written one feature article at that point. And that the main sort of feature, I, the only one I'd written was a story on John, John Cougar. He was John Mellencamp at this point, but when I grew up in Indiana, he was John Cougar. He's John Mellencamp. Cougar. Yeah, absolutely. He was John yeah. Cougar and then John yeah. Cougar Mellencamp, then John Mellencamp. Yeah. So it's 1989. I'm going to go home to Indiana to see my parents for Thanksgiving. And like, we're at a media mix. And they go like, Hey, Tom, you're from Indiana. They're going to build a studio for John, John Mellencamp. Do you know John Mellencamp? And I'm like, all right, Bay Area people. <laughs> Indiana still has four million people. I mean, no, I don't know John Mellencamp, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. but I can find him out. And so I just did a little phone stuff. I mean, I just, if you don't ask, the answer is no, right? So I called a couple of people, figured it out by phone, 
pre-cell phone and got a story with John Mellencamp. Talked to Mike Wanchek, his producer. Talked to Ross Hogarth, who was helping working on Mellencamp's oh, yeah. albums at that time. Ross helped design that studio, and they built the studio called Belmont Mall in Nashville, Indiana, in 1989. It's in Mix Magazine. Design. I'm a kick myself. Ross was involved. I did not talk to John Mellencamp, but I remember hearing this story, which later stimulated my interest in studio design. They found the, they had a big cavernous vaulted ceiling for Kenny Arnoff's drums. They needed space. And <laughs> I don't even know what this means in 1989, but I'm listening to it. Yeah. And then they, they, they couldn't get it right. They're not getting the sound right in the live room. And they had a Trident board. They had a Trident 80. And I find out nice. people call Trident the rock and roll board at this point. So it's 1989. I'm, I know what SSL is. I know what Neve is. And now I know that Trident is a rock and roll board. And they found, they went to a closing, a radio station in Indianapolis that was closing and had this perforated tile pegboards from the 1950s for a voice booth at a radio station. And they got them out of the, it's not an estate sale. What is it when they close a radio station? But they bought this board and just cut it into geometric patterns and put it up on the walls and ceiling. And it broke up Kenny's drums. As they said, Mike Wanchek told me, Kenny's a beater. And this room is just bouncing. And they just found these. Somebody was in Indianapolis and said, what about this? And you couldn't find that pegboard today. Nobody had manufactured it at that density or whatever. It's just a happy accident. And it worked for Kenny Arnoff's drums. Wow. And I, in 1989, I don't know what that means, honestly. Yeah. But I write the story. And 30 years later, I know what that means. I think <laughs> that was brilliant. You know, that was brilliant. Well, Kenny, Kenny hits hard. He's, he, Kenny he hits hard. very said, hard, yeah. man. I think Mike Wanchuk said, yeah. Kenny's a beater. Yeah, you know, yeah. which great, leads great me to drummer. another another story. This is a quick aside before sound for film. Kenny Arnoff was the drummer in the band in and around Bloomington, Indiana, that would play at the patio in Indianapolis and the Bluebird Cafe and Jake's in Bloomington. Uh, the same guy owned all the clubs and they would do the college circuit. And Kenny played at the Little Nashville Opry in the house band. And he was also in the Raging Texas as a drummer. And then he joined Mellencamp and he became, and then he's, Later, he's at Obama's inauguration. Kenny Arnoff played drums. I can remember the first Obama inauguration. He's, he's playing drums in zero-degree weather on the Capitol. He was a drummer for the Raging Texans in Bloomington, Indiana. Other uh, people knew of him. And so when I'm in graduate school in 1987, 88, I hear this rumor from a friend of mine that Mellencamp's going to be at the Bluebird tonight. He's showing up, surprise show. Mellencamp's coming to the Bluebird. He's going to be a surprise show. And then my girlfriend who became my wife worked at Tina's Deli and John Mellencamp's wife came in and ordered dinner for six. And we had no cell phones, but we figured out by four o'clock, let's go to the Bluebird. Fuck it. Let's go to the Bluebird. <laughs> and, and so we went there at six o'clock. It was a, a dollar cover and two dollar pitchers of beer in 1987. And the Raging Texans are playing. They're the opening band. It's this great regional blues band in the mid 80s. I mean, they rocked it. And we've all been there. You, you get into a good bar with a 500 capacity. The band's hot. Well, in 1987 in a college town in the Midwest, that was a good night out. And so we're sitting there. We get a table up early. I have my group of you know, a bunch of buddies. I'm in the journalism program. And um, all of a sudden, after the first set, the Raging Texans lead singer says, we want to bring out a friend of ours, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Mellegan. And um Basically, the door had to close at the start there. The fire marshal's there. People are outside. Everybody heard the rumor. And we have like a front row table. And we paid a dollar cover. And so Mellencamp comes out. 
in a like a tight white t-shirt looking like james dean with literally with marlboros rolled up in his sleeve <laughs> honestly honestly to say he smoked on the stage while he was singing and um he rocks a set with his full band comes out and joins the texans the st- uh, most of the texans stayed as filler did it all and while i'm sitting there at the table there's these three or four people come out from backstage at the bluebird cafe in bloomington indiana and I think like he kind of looks familiar. They they sure don't look like they're from Bloomington, Indiana, in 1987. Leather jacket, like black jeans, leather, black leather jackets and stuff. And I think that Melancamp finishes his set and says, "Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to bring out a friend of mine, Mr. Lou Reed." And Lou Reed's four feet from me at my table. I go, I, I'm thinking, I thought that was Lou Reed. I thought it was, but we barely had MTV That's at that crazy. point. So Lou, Lou Reed walks on stage and does. Five or six songs with wow. Mellencamp, and then uh, wow, that's comes funny. back. Mellencamp does another set. We're we're ten pitchers in at my table, whatever. And at midnight, they all leave, and the Raging Texans guitar player, who's a great, great blues guitar player, says, "Hey, we got one more special guest for you, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Prine." And oh, um, and John Prine comes out and sits on a stool with an acoustic guitar with the Raging Texans guitar player, and does old funky blues songs with two microphones, four microphones, one guitar and voice, guitar and voice, and magic for a dollar and $2 wow. pictures in Bloomington, Indiana. And we Jeez. found out they were all there because the next day was the second Farm Aid back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Going to, Farm Aid. What a great show that was. They are going to Urbana-Champagne to meet Willie Nelson and Mellencamp and them were founding sponsors of Farm Aid. And yeah. they happened to be in Bloomington and these people put on a show. Yeah. To remember, they funded. Did, flash, they, did all those guys fund that farm aid themselves? Kind of themselves. I mean, it was a it. telethon. It and came out of it, but it was I was that was admirable because back then it was not cool, yeah. right? They kept <laughs> and, it going you know, for a while. In the I know. They kept it going for a while. Yeah, and you know, it. and those guys did it themselves, and just uh, was well, like Willie and that was a magic one. John Mellencamp, and yeah, all those that group of guys. It was such a great. <sighs> and you know what? I mean, that was sort of a transitional thing from when I was a kid. We would go to Day on the Green in San Francisco. Or I once saw Joan Jett Police and somebody else at Comiskey yeah. Park. I saw Bob Dylan, Grateful Dead, and Tom Petty at RFK Stadium in Philadelphia one summer day. And I, you know, and now there's Bonnaroo, Coachella, and everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's all that. And the festivals took over, but there used to be days of crazy big music. And then. The farm aids became an extension of that. Now we have festivals. It's a very, I mean, some of that evolution is there. And when you spend 31 years like an old grandfather at one job, you discover that. You yeah. get some perspective. Yeah. I apologize. We have not gotten to South for film yet, but no, the John Mellencamp story was good. I'm from Indiana. John, yeah, people no. forget. John John Mellencamp was a big deal. Whether you liked him I always not. liked him, man. I had one of his um, first records, and it, it you didn't realize that he wrote, like, Pat Benatar covered, you know, one of his songs and oh, made it huge. Great um, stuff. But I was listening to it. There's an old song called Ain't Even Done With The Night, right? That's one of his old, older ones from, like, his first or second record. And they were really good. Like, they were really well done. Well, you know, written songs and oh, good you know, songs I, saw him, I saw him many times live. <laughs> yeah, and Ross did a great job in his early days. They're like yeah. Scarecrow, he comes yeah. out of the ground. No, they sounded days. great. All his record songs. Yeah. And I will say that in terms of celebrity of that name dropping aspect, John he shops at grocery stores in Bloomington, Indiana. He goes yeah. to his kids' soccer games. I mean, there's the he, he's a genuinely just 
stayed home kind of guy. Yeah, he know? never, um, he never, he didn't seem like he ever really bought into the whole L.A. Uh, New York, you know, rocker scene. He was just there was no falsity. I'm sure he was yeah. tried. I'm sure they tried to seduce him into that scene, and he just said no. And yeah, for a simple boy from Indiana, that was a good message. But yeah, that was my first feature story for Max. I mean, it was a. Uh, I wrote up as a studio profile and I learned, I didn't know how much I was learning about acoustics at the time. I didn't know how excellent a guitar player Mike Wanchek was and turned to be a producer out of Indianapolis and making it work. You know, Mike Wanchek's yeah. a great guy, making it work. People make it work out of Portland. People make it work out of Minneapolis. People make it work out of Seattle. And um, I happened to fall into a couple of good people in my home state of Indiana. And it's a good lesson right at the start of mix. And so, so for, here's the sound for film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk more about that, right? Did you guys like the Doors? Did you guys like the Doors? Oh, when you I was up, a right? huge I mean, Doors fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doors, yeah. Yeah. Still am. Very different, right? I mean, like uh, if you listen to a lot of rock and roll acts or anything, and then you, you listen to the Doors, you say, like, "Yeah, it's wow. L.A. It's very and it's very yeah. L.A." Like that. They're yeah, one of the a, reasons. Honestly, it sounds so corny, but as a younger guy who wanted to come out here and make records or try to make records or do whatever. Yeah, that there that was one of the bands that you know you romanticized about. What was it like in the '60s right. to make records here, the '70s? And yeah, yeah. they're the quintessent one of the quintessential LA bands, in my opinion. Wow. They made they great were, music. They, and yeah. They're very unique. I mean, there's no right. other sound yeah. like it, right? I mean, yeah. there's like it's like right. the first time you heard Blondie, you go like, "Wow, there's nothing that sounds like that," <laughs> right. um, or Devo or whatever. Yeah. But the Doors, I mean, it was uh, even my dad had an, an appreciation for them, and he's an old big band yeah. early jazz guy and who who what, also like la woman did also like on, the, on the other woman. side of the coin he's a huge country fan a willie nelson uh, really and chris christopherson that uh, um, good songwriting good yeah songwriting. yeah so he's a big uh, fan of that and then he would i would play this stuff when i was younger and make him sit and listen to it because he'd make me sit and listen to his jazz record so he got to that was one of the bands where he was like after a while he was like okay i get it i get you know he could hear what was going on and the blues bass of my, it. He, he my loved, evil you know? father made me listen to jazz records. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I ended up making a bunch of jazz uh, records probably because some, of that. There's definitely some jazzy shit in the doors. I mean, that's, I was a music fan that mixed until a lot of that. I'd read a lot. I'd copy it. I knew enough technical terminology to be dangerous. The only feature I'd done had been on John Mellencamp. And then I wrote news stories up front. And then um, I'm sitting there. On, this is an honest, to goodness story. And we there were no cell phones. There were car phones. People gave you their car phone number. They yeah, called it those. the car phone. <laughs> and so I'm at one o'clock. I don't know why I wasn't at lunch, but you know Blair Jackson must not have been at his desk. George Peterson must not have been at his desk. The call comes to me. I pick up the phone. Uh, Tom Kenny makes magazine. He goes. Hello, is this Mix Magazine? I go, yes. He goes, this is Paul Rothschild with the doors. I go, hello, Mr. Rothschild. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> he said, and I, the day before I had edited like a thousand word story by Nick Pasquarello about recording Todd Maitland, one of the geniuses of film sound, recording yeah. dialogue on the doors movie. And I'd edited this little piece, you know, part of the 248 pages of mix. And it was about recording the thumper track 
for the crowds at the scene. When the Doors are doing their live performances, they don't shoot with music. You know, they quiet on the set and they do a bump, 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 just with the beat in the crowd. The extras are clapping and cheering and they record all that and everything else is replaced later. <laughs> I didn't know this. I find this out much later. So that was our story. Todd Maylin recording dialogue. I get this call and we're about two weeks or three weeks from shipping that issue. I'm an assistant editor at this point. And he goes, I go, yes, Mr. Rothschild. I, I just edited that story. We talked with Todd Maitland. And he goes, I know you talked with Todd Maitland. This is a two hours and 10 minute movie with two hours and four minutes of music, Doors music from the original four tracks. And you talked to the guy who recorded dialogue on the set. Is this mixed magazine <laughs> or what? And I go like, sir, my hometown had three stoplights. Please don't be mad at me. <laughs> but I, what I said was, um, you're absolutely right, Mr. Rothschild. What do you suggest we do? And I, don't, I mean, it's one of those moments that you hope that you do when you're a kid. And I had no idea that it would turn out this way. But he said, I suggest you get a writer down here to Hollywood. I'll give you the fucking story. <laughs> you know, how we did this from... With razor blade edits and the Sinclair, and I go like, okay, okay. Uh, and I took his car phone, his fax. Faxes <laughs> were big in '91, and a uh, office home, whatever. And I went up to David Schwartz's office right after lunch, and I, you know, we're three weeks away from shipping. I'm a junior editor. And I said, um, David, I, I did know enough to know that Paul Rothschild was the producer of The Doors. I didn't know a lot, but I knew that much. And I said, I, he, I just got this call. I think he's right. I mean, we're Mix Magazine, and I just edited the story, and there's not a thing about music. At this point, Mix hadn't covered, like, high-end film or television or anything like that. I didn't know anything about it. And he goes, I said, David, so I think he's right. And David Schwartz, to this day, one of the reasons I love David forever, I visited him in New Mexico. He said, do you want to do the story, Tom? And I just go, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know one thing about film sound. I didn't know one thing about, I, I knew I liked the doors pretty much. <laughs> and so I called Paul Rothschild back that afternoon and I, I got his address on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. And uh, this is all done by phone, not no cell phones, no Twitter, no, no GPS, no anything. I said, okay, he goes, I'll get some guys together. You come on Thursday. I'll get the guys together. We'll meet at my house. And so I called David Goggin, Mr. Banzai, who wrote an interview calling for Mix. And I said, can you come be my photographer? I'm going to do this story. I didn't know anything about it. And I figured I'm a journalism guy. So I went to George Peterson and Mix, who had done some 16 millimeter documentary film production at San Francisco State in the early 70s. And I said, George, what do you know about film sound? And then I went into the Mix bookshelf and we had books and library. I, I wrote I, Audio for Media, second edition, I believe. I read that book in a day. I talked to George and I came up with questions. I tried to figure out how is sound for film done? And I went down there three days later and I had a, a legal pad and a tape recorder and Mr. Bonsai meeting me and it was pouring rain at LAX and I'd never even traveled on business in my life. I'd, I'd only been on a few planes in my life. And the, the, I remember the, uh, the Hertz agent or whatever at the airport says, it's pouring rain outside. You might have mudslide problems on Laurel Canyon. And I take an airport map. There's no GPS. I arrive at Paul Rothschild's. I had ordered pizza from the airport to be delivered and beer. And I walk into his living room. And this is the Doors producer. And they're in the living room are Bruce Botnick, who turns out to be introduced 
24 channel digital 24 channel digital recording to Hollywood with rock and roll. Paul Rothschild, Mike Minkler, who has a couple Academy Awards for re-recording mixing. Wiley Statement, who is the supervising sound editor and comes in later in my life. And uh, this young guy named Tim Clayman, who's 22 years old and fresh out of the New England Digital Sinclair School, and later becomes the prominent person at Digidesign. Now, and these people are in the room. I have no idea how many Grammys or Oscars are in there. I'm, I'm naive, and I, it's pouring rain. I set out a tape recorder, and I said, um, I'm going to ask you a few questions. I don't pretend to know what you know. Uh, it's going to be released in about a month. Just please state your name. Uh, cut in on each other and let's just consider this a post-mortem on the movie and um i'm gonna write it up for mix and and i um went back to mix and i actually pulled out vinyl and i i got on the sound system and i would play vinyl i'd walk around the office going do 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 bum 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 and i got the whole office excited here's a new feature story and i called i forget the releasing company now columbia whatever and um I got film stills on slides delivered to me by mail. And I, cool. in three weeks, I put together a story called The Music is Your Special Friend, a Doors lyric. Yeah. And um, I got the art director slides that we developed down the street at the uh, bridge. Lab. I did, did all this and, and I wrote it and I recorded interviews. I took that three hours and, um, and I got a feature in Mixed Magazine with psychedelic stuff. I found out things like when you see Val Kilmer's lips, it's Val Kilmer singing. And when you don't see his lips, it's Jim Morrison. And they did tests with Ray Manzarek about like Jim's voice. And, and he said he couldn't tell the difference between the two if wow. it was just audio. As soon as you put Val Kilmer's face on the screen with Jim Morrison's voice, he said, it doesn't work. Yeah. And they said, but Ray, no video, you, uh, you couldn't tell. Yeah. With video, you can, he said, yeah. And I, I've carried that sort of like, wow, uh, that's a little weird, but in a weird way, it makes sense. Yeah. I learned all these things. Wiley's statement at that time told me that they use waveframe audio workstations for the hand claps, but they use Fairlights for the dialogue because Fairlight did dialogues and audiophiles did brute processing better. They used Do Re Mi Dawn for certain effects. Yeah. They did this for music. There was no Pro Tools, really. There was sound tools at the time. Yeah. And all these things were being introduced and then put back onto a 35 millimeter mag medium for playback and working on the dub stage. And so I, I know nothing and I'm learning all this and I write a story. I think it's cool. I sit in my office. Yay. And then about a month later, I get a call. It might be two months. I memory is foggy, but, uh, Gloria borders was at Skywalker sound up in Marin County and said, Hey, Tom, you know, they called me instead of Mix, which was never happened. So we uh, we saw your story in the Doors movie, and we have this little movie going on called Terminator 2. Would you like to? Uh, we'd love to have you come up hear about what we're doing. And I met Gary Rydstrom, who went on in the 90s to have like seven or eight Oscars, nine Oscars. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Gary did Jurassic Park, Saving Private yeah. Ryan. I, I, Gary's one of the highest of the highest. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. You know, I go, sure, I'll come up there. And I find out all this stuff about how you conform video, about how you have crews working 24 hours because when you make edits on film, I, I learned all about this technical process that was a hybrid of analog and digital that ended up on 35 mag. And uh, I write this story and I love the first Terminator. So as a movie fan, I go like, 
hell yeah, I want to write about Terminator 2. You know, um, and then right after that, a couple of months later, same year, I get a call from Disney. And these are in the days when I ended up driving on a Disney lot and they have their, they, they mentioned Beauty and the Beast. They saw those two stories. And we had this little movie called Beauty and the Beast. We, um, with Jeffrey Katzenberg, we just relaunched the animated franchise with Little Mermaid. I have a two-year-old daughter, a three-year-old daughter. I'm like, Beauty and the Beast from Disney? Hell yeah. <laughs> so I fly down to the lot and I drive and they, I park. There's no PR person. I go park and visitor and I walk around. That would never happen today. No. I meet Terry Porter, who's one of the geniuses of mixing and went on to develop the whole sound systems at Disney and do Marvel movies after doing the Disney franchise and just brilliant stuff that I had a front row seat at. And I'd spend three days with these people at a mix. And sometimes I'd walk in and go, hi guys, I'm Tom Kenny. I'm going to be a fly on the wall. I'm from Mix Magazine. I'm, I'm the only groupie you're going to get, honestly. Like Denzel Washington, He's on the cover of People Magazine. You and me, we're going to be a story in mix. That got me involved in the community, and I met some amazing people. Mark Mangini was the supervising sound editor on Beauty and the Beast. My first three stories were Wiley Statement, Gary Rydstrom, and Mark Mangini. Many of them Oscars, many of them multiple Oscar nominations. I had no idea. And and then um, as a lesson of that, like 20 some years later when I'm doing the mix sound for film event I've had six years of the events Mark Mangini gave a brilliant keynote speech uh, at my film sound event Wiley's statement last year has become a friend and be, he's given me yeah. a, a, an amazing keynote speech and it's because I met them in 1991 and yeah wow that's great I like this you're a regular guy and some of these guys are in the Mount Rushmore of film sound I mean yeah you know and I had no idea but uh, it was a lesson, and it was a very exciting and cool time. Dolby Digital 5.1 appeared at that time, and I'm going to a demonstration on Potrero Hill in San Francisco to hear that Dolby demonstration in the Dolby Theater for 5.1, and they played Green Onions. They played the the several, you know, the Steve Cropper and the, yeah. uh, the whole bit going, and they start in the 5.1 down the center channel going... And then they add an instrument and go around the room. Yeah, that's cool. the opening demonstration. Yeah. And that's the same year I'm writing about Terminator 2 in 5.1. I was a lucky guy. Yeah. I, yeah. I came around at a good time. Wiley's a good, uh, Wiley is a, one of those guys that he's always been also pushing the envelope, I think, on the tech side of things, right? I mean, he, Bro, he's, yes. he's, a, he's a fan of focus, right? And, He's used Focusrite in a lot of our interfaces for stuff, and uh, and he's always pushed. I mean, I think you know he was involved with Sound Deluxe and and those great involved. microphones. Wiley, right? Wiley, right? Yeah. No, go. Let's go back. But the po- Wiley I mean, created you know, one of the greatest. Wiley and Lon Bender created one of the best independent sound facilities in history yes, in Hollywood right, when they right. were Sound Deluxe, and and they created this. Um, I, I've got to know Wiley a bit, and I'm standing at the Cary Grant Theater in last year's Mixed Sound for Film event, the biggest re-recording stage, of the, one of the biggest in the world, the largest Avid S6, the largest yeah. everything, I'm sure Focus Rights there. And Wiley looks at me and goes, you know, I remember when I came in here, I'm born on the 4th of July and brought the first Waveframe audio workstation to right. Sony. That's great. Wiley was that. Wow. He had the second just so... AMS audiophile in Los Angeles. Wow. Second wow. one. Yeah. Wiley did. But so, so sound deluxe. Me, though, Ted. 
They excite me. They excite you. They must. I mean, it's. Oh, yeah, it does. It's like. Wiley created a sound library. Wiley, Wiley and Lon changed the world by creating a sound effects library and, and giving away their field recording, their sound effects yeah. on yeah. top Hollywood Oscar winning movies. Yeah. And they did that. And that's just because Wiley was a. Uh, when I got into the world, some people guard their secrets very close to their vest. Yeah. Like, I, this is, I'm not giving you my setting. Wiley and Lon said, we want to record sound effects and to pay for it we'll create this library we have no secrets the world is full of audio we can all record it it's just a matter of creativity so they started a business paid for their passion and soundalux is a great business you know wiley has creativity technology and business and yes. like yeah. i don't know about you guys but i suck at business and um <laughs> Yeah, you're right. He has all three, doesn't he? He's good at all three. Honestly, I keep returning. These are the types of people that one of the reasons I'm here after 31 years. Like, wow, you can understand what a digital audio workstation is doing in 1986 at, you know, 16-bit processing. (laughs) I mean, mean, the ridiculous, like your storage was 256 megabytes, whatever, and you're making a movie. Like, if you can foresee that and do the soundtrack for the doors and every Quentin Tarantino movie and, and create the most successful business in the Hollywood independent film sound. Business. Yeah. Like, wow, that's pretty good, dude. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, pretty good. good. Just his yeah. career, just what he's done with Quentin alone, Quentin Tarantino would, huh. was, would yeah. be like, you know, the, the epitome of anybody's career, but he's done all this other stuff and the tech stuff that he's been involved with and the pushing the envelope with how they do <sighs> what they do. And he's, yeah, he's and a Wiley, pretty amazing guy. And, and he's Wiley very modest, might, though, right? I mean, he seems oh, like completely, like half completely the time he doesn't modest. even want to talk about himself. He doesn't want to no, talk about No, he's a great guy. No. Yeah. I, it, when, I, when I asked him to be the keynote speaker at Mixed Sound for a film, I, I called him up and I'm, it's July and I need a key. And I, I, he was a choice. We'd gone through lists and I, I wanted Wiley. And I called him up and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to get straight to the point, Wiley. I mean, I've known you, we're not best friends, but I've known you since the doors moved. Uh, would you be my keto speaker this year? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> and I go, shit. And so I keep him on the phone and think, uh, and I said, I'll help you. We'll do all this. We'll do all that. And he came around and he said, well, Tom, I want you to know. He said, I'll, I'll think about it overnight and I'll call you back. He called me five minutes later and said, if I'm going to do this, I want to do this. But I want you to know that any project I do, I do full bore. I mean, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to answer emails. You're gonna, I don't go out in front of crowds and talk. And he did it. And he gave a brilliant talk yeah, and right. um, became, a, became a real friend. And uh, I treasure that kind of thing. Um, name dropping Wiley statement in the audio sound for film world is the same as dropping Peter Gabriel in the music world. I mean, he's that, he's yeah, that yeah. high up. Yeah. You know, and I appreciate both of them. And with that story about the legendary Wiley statement, we have run out of time. Please join us again next week where we're back for the conclusion of this three-part conversation with Mr. Tom Kenny. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Focusrite Pro Podcast. This mostly bi-monthly podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dan Hughley, for Focusrite. Music is by Merlin. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our conversation on social media at Focusrite Pro. For more information, please visit our website at www.pro.focusrite.com.
Mike Wanchek told me, Kenny's a beater, and this room is just bouncing. My Love, evil father know. made me listen to jazz records. Not really. Not really. Trent Reznor wins an Oscar. I mean, <laughs> right. What it's do you think's a bigger deal? I mean, I yeah. don't know. A yeah. Grammy or an Oscar? Not really. All right. Bay Area <laughs> people. Indiana still has 4 million people. I mean, no, I don't know John Mellencamp. 